0: I'm the Doctor, so you're the famous Sam.
1: You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the podcast of your dreams. Well, hopefully it is, if you're an Eighth Doctor fan. We're back as we look to explore those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman.
0: And I'm Kenny Smith, and once more you're on that quest with us to explore the Doctor's exploits whether on screen in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, and more in his eighth incarnation.
1: Woo! Today, our look at the eighth Doctor Adventure novels, which were published by BBC Books in the 1990s, continues as we hit book number 11, Dreamstone Moon by Paul Dannard.
0: Yes, indeed, and this one picks up from the end of Longest Day. As we find Sam on a Cusk spaceship, where she fears she's been trapped forever. So, my dear friend, please tell us about Dreamstone Moon, which was released on the 5th of May, 1998.
1: (coughs) (coughs) Sam is on her own, but her distance from the Doctor doesn't make for a trouble-free life. Rescued from an out-of-control spaceship, she finds herself on a tiny moon, which is the only known source of Dreamstone a mysterious crystalline substance that can preserve your dreams or give you nightmares. Pitched into the middle of a conflict between the mining company extracting Dreamstone and ecological protesters, Sam thinks it's easy to decide who the good guys are until people start dying and the killers seem to be the same species as some of her new friends. Meanwhile the doctor has tracked Sam down but before he can reach her he's co-opted by the Dreamstone mining company and their sinister military advisors. Suddenly it's war, and the Doctor is forced to fight against what he believes in. He alone suspects that Dreamstone isn't what it appears to be, but nobody's listening, and nobody could dream who the real enemy is.
0: Ooh, that's lovely, I like that. It's such a good book, Dreamstone, Moon. Very underrated, I think, particularly as we've got. In fact, no, I'm not gonna tell you. Well, let's let's hear from Steve Cohn, he'll fill us in about what was going on. Steve, of course, was the range editor of BBC Books and
2: he's our new best friend.
1: He is indeed, we love Steve. Hi, Steve.
2: (laughs) Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books Doctor Who List back in the late 90s.
0: We now have Dreamstone Moon by that Paul Leonard again. So I'd imagine that having had a good working relationship with Paul on genocide, it was a fairly easy commission to bring him back to do Dreamstone Moon.
2: It was, yeah, it was an interesting time because really we were kind of just getting to the point where we could age Sam up a bit, and uh, this was a story that kind of obviously followed straight on from Longest Day, uh, leaving the Doctor on his own and no Sam at all. So I don't know, maybe it was an opportunity to do more than we actually did, but you know I'll take responsibility for that rather than Paul. I, th- I think he was certainly writing; he had an idea, and I was trying to force it into a into a brief. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take one on
0: that. I still think the whole central concept of the fact there's an alien brain which is sort of made out of these rocks that people take away and sort of affects their dreams and things like that. I think it's a great concept and
2: bit by bit people are taking this brain apart. Yes, effectively. It kind of, in a way it kind of reminded me of the Sopron from, uh, from Blake Seven. You know, the, uh, the the rock that can, you know, to protect itself can sort of like project back a slightly larger image of whatever's whatever it finds threatening. Uh, the idea of like sentient rocks. Uh, or telepathic rocks is a nice one. Uh, and it's a really good sci-fi idea, and I think obviously Doctor Who works very well when uh, when pushing those ideas to the fore. So yeah, as I say, to quote Tom Baker, it wasn't a failure, um, but uh, it was. You know, there's lots of good stuff in it still. Um, it's just not necessarily one of the uh, one of the standouts. But then you know, in 11 books a year, they can't all be standouts.
1: Thanks again to Steve. As ever, we've created some new readings from the book for you to hear. And we're going to hear our first reading of the day, which has been brought to life by Craig Brawley.
0: Craig is brilliant. I first met him at Big Finish Day a few years ago and he's a gent, become a good pal, and a lovely fella who I'd love to hang out with a lot more. And he's great company. So over to you.
3: She had no idea how long she'd been on the ship, She'd slept six times, so it was probably only a few days, but it felt like weeks. There was no sense of movement. When she tried to use the controls, they'd clung to her, oozing against her skin, searching, presumably, for the familiar pheromonal connections present in the skins of their cusk masters. Whatever it was they were finding in Sam's skin, they didn't like it. She struggled to get up again, forcing her body away from the floor and forcing herself to walk the short distance through the gloomy air to the room where the food eggs were kept. It was like climbing out of a swamp loaded with a 50 kilo backpack. There were only four of the food eggs left. Opening even one seemed like too much effort. It would be so much easier to lie down and cold cold, with scratches along his cheeks, and he wasn't breathing, wasn't breathing, pinching his nose, watching for his chest to rise, blowing, desperate, blowing, wake up, lips pressed hard against his. Please, she told the ship, tears running down her cheeks. Please, I'd just like to go home. But if there was any sentience on this ship, it either didn't understand her, or wasn't working, or simply wasn't switched on. This is stupid, thought Sam. I can't die like this, stuck in an alien spaceship just because I don't understand the control system. She looked at the eggs again, decided that opening one really would be a waste of effort. She wasn't hungry, she had some energy. She would have another go at the control room, right now, before it was too late. With an effort, she lifted her left foot off the sticky floor and lurched out of the food room towards the room where she slept. She had no idea whether it was really a control room, but it contained something that she thought was a view screen. It looked like a jellyfish, strung up on wires with little bits of metal on it, but it glowed slightly and showed her a grid and an image of a star field. For all she knew, it might be the Cusk idea of interior decoration, but the stars did move, if slowly, and occasionally a bright star appeared, bright enough to make her believe that she wasn't drifting in interstellar space, doomed to die. The bright star was there again now, drifting across the screen, presumably the ship was rotating. And there was another star, Sam felt her heart jump, that hadn't been there before. She must be drifting towards something, a planet, a moon, a piece of space junk. She struggled with the floor, adrenaline giving her a renewed burst of energy. The second, star, seemed to be moving relative to the first and changing in brightness so she couldn't be far away from it. If only she could get something to switch on, radar, scanners, even a telescopic sight, then she might be able to find out what it was. The star emitted a little tail of light and began moving very quickly. A spaceship. Sam had an absurd impulse to shout, wave, jump up and down. But the other ship was already gone from the view screen. I'm here, bawled Sam. I'm alive! She knew that there was no way they could hear her, but there was always the chance that they might be telepathic. Vocalization might help them pick up her thoughts. Or failing that, at least it made her feel better. Help me! She yelled. I don't want to die! Silence. There wasn't even an echo from the metal walls.
1: What a voice! We need to get him to do more of these if we do more BBC books in the future.
0: Most definitely to both.
1: Indeed. Kenny, you read this one at the time. What are your memories of it? I'm not going to call Hi. you old this time, I'm sorry.
0: That's very kind of <laughs> me. But, you. no, know, I, I remember this one very fondly. I like the idea of the fact that you've got people who are mining a planet and the rocks that they take away which help people dream are in fact parts of a larger creature's brain so effectively they're getting the dreams of an alien being into their own heads. And we have Sam and the Doctor Parted. This is a really good book for Sam as we get to see a bit of her journey. She's, a lot of people find her really irritating and annoying, but in this one, I didn't at all. I think she's really well written. Um, In fact, to be honest, in a lot of the books where she's well written, she's great. She's really interesting. And in this one, it sort of taps into that fact that she was quite right on and into her social conscience stuff here she's got a bit of a dilemma so yeah really enjoyed it and it's definitely worth tracking down if you can find it
1: i will do my best well thanks for that now let's hear from the wizard behind the curtain the man behind the book and welcome back paul leonard to pieces of eight
4: hello i'm paul leonard hinder paul leonard on the books i wrote the dreamstone moon in the eighth doctor adventures Back in the late 1990s. Kenny, you might remember the exact publication date. I don't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was, um, oh, let me think. Hang on. So this is book 11. So that would be, that be May, May 20. No, not 20. May 1998,
4: that would be. Wow. There we go. Hmm. Just about the month I met my wife.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's really nice. That's a nice (laughs) reconnection. So hello to Mrs Hinder if she's listening.
4: Yeah, something was I always Smith. wondered. You never to
0: name again. Yeah, <laughs> why did you go with the name Paul Leonard for your Doctor Who writing?
4: Um, because I was writing my little serious short stories. I got about five quid for from the fanzines um, under PJL Hinder, and I didn't want the two things to get confused. In the end, I nicked quite a few of those story ideas and turned them into bits of Doctor Who novels. So. <laughs> if You can't plagiarize yourself, who can you? <laughs>
0: yeah, um, so do you remember how quickly after you completed Genocide that you were commissioned to do Dreamstone Moon?
4: That I really don't remember. Uh, how if they, if they were quite close in publication date, it would probably have been almost immediately. Um, I may even have already had the synopsis in with them, but I mean, it's it, it is so long ago, I, I really can't remember what exactly happened. But we were very much on a um. A bit of a production line then because they were producing, they were what it, was it? One every month, that's right. One eighth doctor book, yeah, And a previous so, doctor as well, yeah. So, it, so they were producing two books every month. There was a bit of a production line going for a couple of years there, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I imagine it'd be quite hard when you'd have a full time job to fit in and to come up with 80,000 words in a
4: comparatively short space of time. I can't remember that I was actually working full time, no, I wasn't. I was working part-time for a, a place called ActionAid where we raised money for various causes in a phone room. Something that's become a little controversial. They're not allowed to do some of that stuff anymore. But back then it was seen as relatively harmless and, a, you know, ethical sort of job. I, I was still working part-time when I wrote Jimstone Moon from the day. Excellent.
0: So how did you find writing for The Doctor and Sam's second time around, having found their
4: voices previously? Did that make a difference for you? God, again, I wouldn't really remember... I it does seem to me that sam's character is a little bit more rounded in dreamstone moon having reread it than in genocide but that may simply be because she's much more of a central character because she spends the entire book separated from the doctor which i think was some kind of continuity gig that i failed to understand
0: (laughs) (laughs) i think it's quite an interesting dynamic the fact that we do have them apart and then i think there's it's a very brief sort of when they cite each other towards the end of the book and then they're, they're right. broken off again and off they go before it's all resolved in the next book
4: mm-hmm. yeah I can't I've uh, now you're talking about it I have some vague memory that was slightly confused uh, originally they were supposed to be brought back together in Dreamstone Moon and then something changed because the guy who wrote the next book wanted to do something <laughs> and I said yeah I'll go along with that <laughs> bother me so yeah. I probably just rewrote the last couple of chapters.
0: That's an easy way out of it. There you go. I mean, had you been reading yeah. the ongoing series as they came
4: out, just to keep up to date with what the other writers were doing? I There's clearly some continuity in the opening chapter with the, um, the pizza spaceship. <laughs> she's stuck inside I actually I, I did again I, always when I see something like that I wonder if Jim Mortimer wrote it for me because it doesn't seem like my writing but he assures me he wasn't helping me that much at that stage in my career <laughs> so probably I did write it but it did seem very unfamiliar to me that that opening chapter it, it seemed largely controlled by the continuity but yeah I can't remember I must have read the previous book but probably the following book or the draft of it before I finished Dreamstone Moon but
0: yeah so what was your starting point for this one because it's quite a it's quite it's a really good um, concept the fact that the stones are all part of something else and here it is being mined and breaking it up
4: I think the original concept was that this moon was going to be this like intelligent or proto-intelligent almost like a child and some of the scenes where there's all the action going on and things are being blown up originally I think it was meant to be the mummy being coming to rescue the child but eventually I decided that was A, too cliché and B, didn't really work since the planet was probably the mummy being anyway and so I came up with a more interesting concept that it was in fact being imprinted on the stones by this passive aggressive guy who's the who's the central character apart from Sam, you know, Anton.
0: I think it's quite a it's quite a fascinating concept and the whole no- and the whole notion of the dreaming particularly i think that's some obviously we all sleep we all dream and i think to have that being sort of the influence having your dreams controlled as part of something else i think that's a fascinating idea do you remember what inspired that
4: um i don't know i mean it was it may have been one of those ideas i nicked from one of my uh, short stories because there are a number that were finished but there were also a number that were unfinished in the sense that i wrote some of it and it sort of didn't work but some of the concepts may have then got nicked um it is also possible i simply nicked it from somebody else's story but i don't think it bears much resemblance to the similar sounding philip k dick we can remember it for you wholesale but it's entirely possible i did nick it from something like that i mean i like the
0: fact that of course it's something again we can relate to the fact there's a mining company and there's ecological protesters. And that's something, of course, that's really come to more prominence in recent years the fact that people are sort of being far more proactive about the environment and things like that. So, in many ways, you're ahead of your time there, Paul. Um,
4: there was quite a lot of ecological process in the 80s and 90s people tying themselves to trees, all kinds of stuff. Um, and also anti war protests, Greenham Common, you know, there's always been protests there wasn't, any, wasn't anything new. I think what's interesting, I was reading it, but my, my, my default cynicism does cut in. The protesters aren't perfect either. They don't really know what they're doing. They're doing their best. They're all in a bit of a muddle. <laughs> <And> <laughs> they're sort of there, but then they're not really sure what they're actually trying to achieve. And I think that's very, very common with these sorts of protests. They're doing fundamentally the right thing, but if you get close to it, it's all muddly and human and political like anything else.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, we mentioned uh, when we spoke previously about how much you enjoyed creating alien cultures and alien worlds and creatures. So this is another example of you coming up with something that's not quite as um, as we would expect in everyday life.
2: Mm.
4: What was your influence on yeah, in this? Yeah, I tend to go for far, rather far-out ideas. Yeah, possibly because... and this is only something I found out in the last few years, long after writing the book, but I'm actually autistic and I think that my relations with other people are somewhat something I've learned to do as an adult I didn't do it as a child so unlike a a chatty person like yourself, I don't have those natural social instincts, so if I'm trying to write a book that's purely about human relations, it's going to end up being a little stilted uh, because I'll run out of masking frameworks after a while, so I tend to throw in something that's so completely alien that it grabs everyone's attention. In this case, I think you know a, 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 a possibly sentient, at least certainly living crystalline moon. You know,
0: interesting. How did you actually realise that you were autistic? What was it? Was it a slow process of going to see the doctor, and it came about that way?
4: no I, I i suspected i might be but i like a lot of people who suspect they might be in my sort of generation i didn't really bother to do anything about it <laughs> but i did have keep having meltdowns and then i had a really serious meltdown at, root, at work mm-hmm. and they were actually very good i mean they said right we were going to have to put you on garden leave for a while to sort this out they got me an appointment when i said mentioned autism they got me diagnosed um, they even gave me some free counselling and then they put me back at work a few months later on, on, on working largely from home. So they were very good about it. So, but I don't think it would have happened if it hadn't been for that. I would just have gone on thinking, oh, maybe I'm autistic. But it's really useful. I mean, you know, anybody out there who, who thinks they're autistic, do try and find out because once you know, it makes a lot of difference to the way you think about yourself and your relationship with other people. You realise that some of the things you couldn't do aren't because you're a bad person. It's just because you're autistic. <laughs>
3: yeah
0: that's fascinating because i've got i've got friends who've got children who are who are autistic and mm. you know and just the fact that it manifests in different ways in, in so mm. many people and it's i mean, it, I mean from, it's bizarre because i find that from when we've been chatting by email and just now it's i i would never know which is it's, it's i mean and that's it's, it's incredible just how it manifests in different ways
4: yeah you you don't know i mean especially if it's like you've got an adult like myself who, who's learned how to mask in most sort of normal contexts i can keep it up for quite a while and nobody would know there was a problem <laughs> but it's, it's yeah the, 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 it does just crack occasionally i know other autistic people who are fiercely defensive very aggressive around their their frontiers to stop themselves being overloaded yeah. and some who are you know just extremely laid back mm. and it seemed to be perfectly okay but then you realize they're not really communicating the same way as everybody else yeah. and it's yeah it, i mean the the, but the solution is to get the diagnosis because there yeah. are some there is good diagnostic career criteria these days and there's a lot more understanding i mean you know as with many scientific endeavors it's coming on very quickly now yeah. it's catchy in fact i think we've already passed science some of the science fiction concepts i I was using back in the 90s, of like already happened. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in Dreamstone Moon, he's got something that he calls a computer, but is in fact a mobile phone with Siri. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's
0: fascinating because that obviously, the way that your mind works, it's given you that perspective to create your. Know, people that think in a different way from perhaps the norm and in inverted commas mm. and I think that's mm. that's a fantastic you know wonderful your know, rationalization and it gives me a bit of understanding as to how it is so you know thank you for being you know honest and sharing that that's that's really really interesting I find that you're quite insightful it does explain quite a lot of your insight into alien cultures and and just beings that are not we as it were and I hope that doesn't yes. sound insulting or rude in any way because it's more definitely...
4: Yeah, I, I think it's probably because most neurotypical humans probably seem slightly like aliens to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic.
0: So what other memories do you have from writing this one, the things that, your know, influences and things that went into it? You mentioned it before we started recording, a few memories have popped into your mind. Mm, I
4: mean, yes, I mean, it's... Um, one of the things that interests me is um, Anton is actually, he has this relationship with somebody who actually turns out to be an alien. And I think this was, this was my way of, you know, because back then there was still a lot of discrimination against people with different sexual preferences, different gender preferences. That still goes on, of course, but we have moved a long way in 25 years. But it was just my, that was just my way of putting it in there without making it just, oh yeah, he's having a gay relationship or something. This is something that's truly different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but would would have to be acceptable if you lived in a culture where there was different different species. There would be interspecies relationships. It would happen. I like that.
0: I think it's as you say. Things have definitely come a long way, and uh, long may they continue to do so. So it's everybody's hmm. interacting, and everything is the norm. So, so, did you have any other highlights when you reread it? Bits that you particularly enjoyed.
4: Um. Yeah, I mean. um, The trajectory of Anton from, you know, almost... He starts like like this most heroic artist, artist, you know, like a a sort of Van Gogh-type thing. I've discovered a new way of doing things, and I don't like this commercial way of doing things. And then gradually you realise that he's actually responsible for most of the problems. (laughs) Which was very much how I felt at the time. I had this thing about artists being parasitic on culture. And I think this was partly to do with... I had. Again, back in the 90s, there was a much stronger divide between... There was this idea that the artists were special people, and there were only going to ever be a very few of them. Of course, this is nonsense. You know, This is based on the 18th century, when there weren't that many people who are educated enough to be artists, so of course there are only a small number of them. Once you get into the early 21st century, you've got TikTok and (laughs) YouTube and all that. Everybody has an opportunity to be an artist. You might not make any money from it, but you can do it, and some of it's very good. And suddenly you realise that this actually really enriches culture. There's nothing wrong with art. What's probably wrong is expecting to be paid for it. (laughs) It's a a means of self-expression and healing and sharing. Not really a means of making money, except in exceptional circumstances. I
0: think it's, I think it's a great book I, I remember the first time I read it I just I loved it. And I remember I was in hospital. I had a brain tumor removed in the late two thousand, and I reread I think it was like the first twelve or 13 Eighth doctor books, and this one absolutely sang to me, and it's it was you know just really nice to be able to say once again, thank you for a great read when I really needed something to take my mind off, some horrible things going on in the real world to myself
4: Mm, Yeah Oh well, yes That's not not a nice thing to have happen in your 20s I suppose it would have been, yes Yeah yeah, yeah, it was, yeah Yeah.
0: 25, 26, but but it's still amazing just how you can get that You know, just a a book can give you that support and get you through tough times or several books in this case and just take you to Uh, somewhere uh, far
4: away That's it. Uh, uh, I always found that reading science fiction, I read more science fiction than anything else, um, because it just takes you that much further away. It gives you more to think about than conventional fiction. And again, that might be some reflection on the autism, that conventional fiction generally deals just with human relationships most of the time. And some of it I just didn't get. (laughs) Whereas with SF, there's lots of stuff I could get, even if I couldn't get the other stuff
0: yeah no it's it's fab it's a really good read and again it's one that i would recommend that if anybody hasn't got a copy of it pop onto ebay and other places and get yourself a copy it's if you were to self-critique it paul how would
4: you sum it up now i think i should have been slightly less obsessed with anton being the baddie <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I changed that ending. Originally, it wasn't like that, and I, I rewrote the sort of last chunk of the book, or rewrote it from the synopsis stage um, to, to to do that. I think originally, it was something a bit more conventional, like Mummy Mummy Planet comes to rescue them, or something like that. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad I did because it works quite. I think it works quite well as a as a sort of cautionary tale as it as it runs because you, you 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 see a lot of it from Anton's point of view, and you don't realise. That he, you know that he's the one actually causing this problem by his very processes of thought
0: yeah but no it's, it's a great read and paul i just want to say thank you once again for coming on and having a chat and hopefully we'll get a chat very soon about revolution man
4: oblige yeah okay i better reread that one then it's all right <laughs> okay. time's on your side we've got months before we even get there right okay <laughs> <laughs> right. nice thank- talking to you kenny thank you
1: Thanks again to Paul, he's written several other Eighth Doctor books, so hopefully we'll chat to him about those before too long. We are nearly out of time for today's episode, but before we go, why don't we have a second extraction of the book, again read by Craig Brawley?
0: Yes please.
1: Yes please. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sam began to feel cold. The man was out of his head, but it was beginning to look as if this was shock, not drugs or insanity. What had he seen? Not the attack on her party, that was for sure. It didn't seem unreasonable that there was more than one XLX around, and that they should all be unnerved by the quake. But were they all attacking people suddenly? And if so, why? Before she could ask the man any more, there was a shout, then the booming of an amplified voice. I will count to three, then fire a warning shot! She saw someone running along the gallery, his footsteps booming on the bare metal. Someone who looked like. who was. no, it couldn't be. But it was. the doctor. The doctor! Sam felt a wild surge of joy, and at the same time her face flushed deep red. This was going to be very embarrassing, and there wasn't time to explain. Perhaps that was just as well. And how could she be thinking about such things? He was alive! He was running, madly, down a flight of spiral steps, yelling at the top of his voice, Sam! Sam! There was an explosion of light and a yell from the doctor. Sam saw smoke rising. She couldn't see the doctor anymore. He was hurt. She dived through the crowd, yelling, Don't kill him! Don't kill him! Don't! 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 She caught a glimpse of the doctor being lifted up, being carried over the shoulder of one of the soldiers. Then her view was blocked by a wall of backs. No, he's not dead, she bawled. I have to help him. She pushed her way through the crowd, pummeling on people's backs, kicking their legs. She caught a glimpse of the doctor's hair. Surely it was his hair. A flash of light, Were the soldiers firing again. But surely they wouldn't just kill him. Was there someone else there? What was happening? Suddenly Sam became aware that people were screaming, moving, pushing her off her feet, that the crowd were flowing towards the exit in a flood tide. The man in front of her was struggling, with a spacesuit helmet pushing it over his head. Then she felt the air moving past her. (laughs) Heard the scream of breaking metal.
0: Thanks again Craig, Superstar.
1: Remember, if you've enjoyed today's Pieces of Eighth, or indeed liked any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, as it means more people can find our episodes, and it's always appreciated, just like the Rusks I had yesterday. Mmm,
0: Rusks. No, I, I was never a big Rusk fan, I must admit. Um, was
1: it yesterday that I had Rusks, or was it the day no, before? No, it was two days ago.
0: It just shows you it's <laughs> merging all these days are merging <laughs> into one. But yes, we'll be back next time with another BBC book, this time as... The Doctor and Sam are finally reunited, rather than just the brief encounter that they had when they saw each other in this book. And we'll be chatting about Seeing Eye with Jonathan Blum and Kate Orman. And in it, we learn that Sam has a relationship with another girl. Shock horror for '90s Doctor Who fans. You, mm-hmm. I was honestly at the time in the '90s. This was like what? It was a real shock for fans who were just expecting companions to fancy the Doctor if they were female, and that was it. So yeah, real shocker, Rooney.
1: I can imagine.
0: Mm -hmm. So until next time, I've been Kenny Smith.
1: And I was Rebecca Chapman.
0: We'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. We will
1: indeed. Bye.